Thank you for listening to the Cross Loganville podcast as we continue in our series, 29, the book of Acts. Acts 29 is the scariest chapter in the Bible. I'll never forget years ago making that statement in a Bible study, and I said, hey, I'm just going to tell you right now, people were going around quoting their favorite verses like Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ, and Ephesians 2, I'm saved by grace, and they're like, Cash, what's your favorite one? I said, well, I've got a lot of favorites, but I will tell you the scariest chapter in the Bible is Acts 29. And I saw a couple of the guys start to flip over, and they're like, mm, my Bible only has 28 chapters in it. And I was like, well, there's a reason. Because 29 is being written today by the work of the Holy Spirit in the redeemed of the Lord as we obey and yield to God. It is an unscripted chapter. It's unfamiliar it's unknown. It hasn't been lived out yet. Uh, God is an original God, and oftentimes we try to duplicate in the flesh what God originated in the spirit. The reason Acts 29 is so scary is it hasn't been written before. And for some of us, it is absolutely mind-blowing and crazy to think that God would want to use somebody like you to write a story that's never been written. Think about it. That the God of all creation wants to use somebody like you. Somebody like you to engage in a conversation. Somebody like you to be salt and light in the community in which you live. Somebody like you to write a story for his glory that has never been written. It's going to be original. It's going to be unique. But here's my question to you. Are you useful and are you available? It's been said that ability without availability is a liability. And I know a lot of people that are liable, Lon. I'm like, ah, what's happening? If you go back and study Scripture, Jesus in Matthew chapter 16, he made this statement. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Jesus takes his disciples to a place called Caesarea Philippi, and while they're there, Jesus asks the question, who do people say that I am? Well, some say you're Elijah, some say you're John the Baptist raised from the dead, and then he looked at the disciples and he said, but how about you, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the son of the living God. And Jesus said upon that statement, that bolder statement that you're making right there, that rock of a statement that I am the Christ, the son of the living God, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Let me disappoint some of you here this, this morning. The church that Jesus founded is not a building it's not made of bricks and sticks and stones. The church that Jesus founded does not have a location or a geographical address. It's not a denomination. It's not Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Pentecostal, or whatever. The church that Jesus founded is a person or a group of people that have radically repented of sin, placed their faith and confidence in Jesus Christ as being Lord and authority and master. That's the church. People say, hey, man, it's time to get rolling. 
Hey, you slept in long enough, grab a shower, we're going to church. But you can't go to what you are. You are the church. The redeemed of the Lord is the church, and you can't go to what you are. I'll get to that in a second. Jesus said, hey, upon this statement right here that I am the Christ, Messiah, I am God's salvation, I'll build my church. The church is built on the conviction that Jesus really is God's salvation. It's built on the conviction that Jesus really did die a criminal's death, and on the third day he was raised from the dead, that he has conquered death, hell, and the grave. Jesus is king of all kings, and he's Lord of all lords, and he invites all, everyone, everywhere to come to him through faith and repentance. That's why Master Jesus would say, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me. Now, the local church, the local church is a group of people who gather together who are committed to a common mission. The local church, there's only one, the one that Jesus started, but the local assembly should all come together and be committed and connected for the glory of God with a common mission that Jesus has given us. Uh, the local church should meet consistently together and engage in worship, word, prayer. I'll get to that in a bit, but that's part of what the local church does. And, and, and the local church, it should in invite and provoke all of us to be connected in, in some type of kindred. The Greek word koinonia is the word for fellowship, meaning that we should come together and grow together for the glory of God. The church is all about relationship with Jesus that is to grow daily, and it's about fellowship with those that belong with Jesus that should be engaged in weekly. There's no long rangers and even the writer of Hebrews would say, do not forsake assembling with other believers. When you look at the church that Jesus started, the church that Jesus started is active. It's alive. It's engaging. It participates. It's contributing. It's moving. It's a movement. It's elastic. It's flexible. It's transient. When you go back and study church history, that's what the church was. It was this movement that had been started by Jesus through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that the recipients of the gospel would receive, and they were active. They were engaged, and every person was contributing because they were a member of the body. And so for the body to flourish, all things have to work together, synced up, right? It was a movement. So if you follow and study and contemplate church history, this is so important to know. You go back around the year of 327 A.D. There was a guy by the name of Constantine, and Constantine had this city built called Constantinople. And so Constantine was a very powerful man, had a lot of power and control, if you will. And with the city being built and with all these people living in the city, Constantine said, I'm going to make Christianity the state religion. That sounds really good on paper. But we're going to make Christianity the state religion. And what he did is he took some things from Scripture and he took some things from pagan culture, like December 25th when Malchus, this dude, was being celebrated and honored. And we're going to ascribe that day to the day that we say that you can worship Jesus' birth. 
came out of pagan practices, some of these things do. And so what he did is he took and borrowed things from Scripture and from culture, threw it into a blender, mixed it together, and said, all right, this is, this is going to be the, uh, the kind of the menu and the spread, if you will. The problem was he did a lot of things that corrupted the elastic, flexible movement, engagement, contributing, partnering strategy that Jesus had started. So in the city of Constantinople, he had these 12 buildings constructed, and he said these are going to be the places where people meet for worship, and he called these places churches, and the word he used was a unique word. He used the word kuriakon. Kuriakon is a non-biblical word, but it means a house or a structure belonging to the Lord. Jesus said, upon this rock I'll build my church, the word that Jesus used was the word ecclesia, and the word ecclesia means those who have been snatched out of the world, who now belong to Christ, who are being sent into the world on mission by God. Ecclesia, Jesus started. Constantine constructs these buildings, and he calls them curiacons, churches of that day, and the word kuriakon means a house or a structure belonging to God. Follow me. He names these places St. Thomas and St. Matthew and St. John and St. Andrew, you name it. Here's the fundamental problem. God does not dwell in buildings made by human hands. So what ended up happening with the church that Jesus started is it got into the hands of different people, and over the years, we find ourselves at a place now, 2022, that we would say, now what does modern church look like? And modern church has become a place that you attend. Modern church has become an event that you sit through. Modern church has become something that you take from, not a movement that you're a part of, not something you're contributing to, not something that you're actively involved in. And that's what we find so much in our culture today. See, the church became an institution. And when the church was institutionalized, what happened is it started being controlled by people. If you go back and study even church history, even the Catholic church would have a Bible chained to the podium, and the only person that could open that was the priest. See, Pope Gregory the Great would write this papal decree in 550 A.D., and he would give what he would call the papal authority, if you will, to these popes and different priests at that time. And in that document, he said only those guys are the ones who can run the church and CEO the church, and they're the only ones that can marry people and bury people, and they're the only ones that can open the word and tell you what the word means. And so when you start giving man too much power, watch out. You see, the church that Jesus started, if I haven't said it already, it, it was a movement. It was active. It was uh, alive. It was engaging. People were contributing, and that's the church that Jesus started. The church that Jesus started is he is always going to be the head of that church, and every person that belongs to him just is a mere member of the body. There's only one head. But see, the interesting thing when you start to study it 
And the danger of the church in every generation is for it to cease being a movement and for it to become just an event that you attend. Upon this rock, I'm going to build my church, that I am the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and the gates of hell will not prevail. The Cross of Loganville is a movement it's not stagnant. It's not stale. You're to have an active part in the movement of Jesus' church. When you go back and study it, God established the church and established the spread of the gospel. As I mentioned to you last week, why does the book of Acts in chapter 28 end the way it does? Why does it end with not much clarity of what happened with Paul? Why, why, why does it just kind of end as a cliffhanger? Because we know that Paul eventually died, but the point is Paul can be killed, but the gospel can't. The Holy Spirit is going to continue. Am I going to tap into the Holy Spirit and allow the Holy Spirit and God's power to flow through me or not? See, God established the church. And God established the spread of the gospel. Uh, uh, the Holy Spirit is given to every person that believes. Now, now, the thing is, we have to stay tapped in and abide with Christ so that we're filled with the Spirit and controlled by the Spirit and led by the Spirit. You'll read these kind of phrases in Scripture. Be filled be controlled. Be led. All these kind of things means that we we can yield to and surrender to what God wants to do. And when we do that, God starts to write new stories that have never been written that blows our mind. You see, God wants you to be a part of the 29 movement. The Holy Spirit's given to all. When you start to study church history and even go back to the book of Acts and you start to pay attention to what was happening with what God was doing through these apostles. I can tell you that the proclamation of Scripture and prayer was always a priority when people got together. They would open up the Word of God. They would ponder God's statements, the rhema sayings, the, the yoke of Jesus, the sayings of God. That's the phrase that you study, and it's like, hey, we're pondering God's sayings, but they would collectively pray. They would collectively and individually press into God. It's like, yes. I'm reading a new book I started this week. I, I love this book. It's called Praying Like Monks and Living Like Fools. But he's as spot on when it comes to prayer as anything I've read in a long time. God started the church. It was God's idea for the spread of the gospel. It was God's idea to pour out the Holy Spirit. It was God's idea that the proclamation of truth and prayer be essential. And I, I will tell you this, even Master Jesus emphasized that missions to the world should be the norm. Take the gospel to the nations. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem then Judea, then Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. When you study the church and you study Jesus' church, 
the central message that was proclaimed in the church was the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the central message. That, that is the linchpin of my doctrine. That Christ be not raised from the dead, Paul said, then our preaching is vain and foolish. All apostolic preaching was founded on the resurrection of Jesus. If Christ be not raised from the dead, then our faith and belief system is empty. That's the reason we say that the resurrection is the hinge on which the door of Christianity swings. When Jesus says, I am the door and I am the gate, in John chapter 10, we believe that what allows the door and the gate to swing is the hinge, and the hinge is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Christ has been raised from the dead. It separates him from all other world religious leaders. When you start to study Mormonism, Joseph Smith, what happened, dude? You didn't raise from the dead. You study Buddhism, Hinduism, whatever the world religion might be. What differentiates and separates and establishes and validates Jesus is the only one that can offer forgiveness of sin and salvation to all is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We do not serve a dead Savior. We serve a risen Savior. And because of the risenness of Christ, we have hope, we have confidence that we don't boast in ourselves or glory in ourselves, but we boast in the fact that Jesus has defeated death all in the grave. He has been resurrected, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he lives to make intercession for the saints. There is but one mediator between God and man, and it is the man, Christ Jesus, who defeated death all in the grave. Somebody needs to preach in here today. Now, when Jesus was taken up into heaven, we read that in Acts chapter 1, his work on earth did not end. And I think a lot of people treat it that way. We are given the task and the assignment and responsibility to represent Jesus to the nations. 29, in its simplest definition, is a story of men and women who are redeemed by the Lord, who have now become filled with the Holy Spirit, that go into the world in which they live, their communities, their zip codes, whatever, their workplaces, their classrooms, and they express through, one, through walk, and then, two, through talk, the good news of the hope of the gospel. That's what God is wanting to do with us, Candace. Now, Jesus' work, when you study it, was to bring... Salvation to lost humanity. Jesus, why did you come? John chapter 1, verse 29. When John the Baptist saw him, he goes, There's the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. Jesus' mission was to come to take away the sin of the world. If you go back and study Judaism and the practices that were happening during Jesus' day, here's what would happen. Every year they celebrated what is called Yom Kippur. It is the Day of Atonement. And they would go and they would bring this unblemished lamb and they would go there to Jerusalem. And we've been through the Kidron Valley in this place where they would sacrifice these these lambs and the blood would be offered. And the blood was atoning for their sin to cover them for one year. 
every year we've got to go back and make our annual sacrifice, taking this unblemished lamb, offering the blood, and it's going to cover our sin for a year. When John the Baptist sees Jesus, he goes, wow. I think that's what the word behold means. Wow. There's the lamb of God that will take away the sin of the world. You can cover something and uncover it, but when it's taken away, it's gone. Why did you come, Jesus? I came to be the Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world. In John 19, when Jesus cries out on the cross and he says, it is finished, to tell a time, uh, to Telestai, paid in full. Everything that the Father has demanded in regards for payment for sin, paid in full. That's why you came, yes. See, my work is to continue, but let me tell you what my work was. My work was to take away sin. My work was once and for all to declare it is finished. But let me tell you what my work is. Luke 19.10. Uh, I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. You came to seek and to save that which was lost. Yes. I want to see lost people introduced to hope. I want to see lost people found. Now, now if that's the ministry of Jesus, then Jesus' heart was that his work continue in his church. I want to be a part of his church. That's all I want to be a part of. Not not some denomination, not some breaking stick like this is it. We were talking the other day, Dallas is like the church has got to leave the building. I mean, we hang out here, but our mission and ministry is everywhere we go. Je Jesus gave orders to his disciples, and you know, we call it the Great Commission, and what Jesus said is, I want you to take the good news of who I am, my life, my message, my ministry, my resurrection, I want you to take it to the nations. I want you to go make disciples. Now, that, that's a crucial phrase. We'll get back to that in a second. In Luke chapter 24, verse 47, Jesus even said this, it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. To all the nations. I want my people raised up, sent out to the nations, declaring the good news of the gospel. So the gospel now is being manifested through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now we're empowered and sent by God to take the good news that God loves, God saves, God forgives, God redeems to every person in our world. Did y'all hear that? Whose responsibility is that? Let me ask that question again. Whose responsibility is that? Yeah, go there. Go there. Mine. Ours mine. Well, that's our responsibility when it becomes my responsibility. I treat it differently. That's mine. That's my issue. 
That's my assignment. That's mine. Have you allowed it to become yours? Have you allowed it to become yours? So here, here's, here's the rub. Be available. Be I ask the question, are you useful? Are you available? When Jesus chose the apostles, it's, it's awesome. He chose the apostles. They were not self-appointed leaders. They, they didn't just show up and go, check out my resume. If you read Acts 4.13, it says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, they recognized that they were on." learned, uneducated men. But they had been with Jesus. <laughs> what a trump card. Uneducated, unlearned, but they had been hanging out with Jesus. You know what they were? They were available. Jesus said, James, come follow me. They responded. They volunteered. When Jesus uses the phrase, and this is Jewish rabbinical understanding, but when Jesus uses the phrase, Cindy, come follow me, what it literally means is, Taylor, I believe in you, and I believe that you have what it takes to be just like me. When Jesus said, Big Terry, come follow me, Ray, come follow me, I believe in you. I know it's hard for us to even to believe in ourselves because we look at our past failures and mistakes, and he goes, no, Terry, I believe in you. I believe you've got what it takes to be just like me if you'll walk with me. Whose assignment is it? Mine. Whose opportunity is it? It's my opportunity. Who gets to crawl on the altar as a living sacrifice? I do. Who gets to crawl off and go do whatever he wants to? The tug of war is, are you going to be useful and are you going to be available? He chose them first to salvation. Then he chose them to become apostles. And the word apostle means one who is sent by authority on assignment. Hey, I'm sending you out there. I, I, I'm doing a work in you and I, I'm going to use you as my apostle. The apostolic call, Tim, I, I want to send you. Are you willing to go? I'm, I'm, I'm willing to go. They were, they were not sent under their own authority. They just went out as servants. They didn't go out preaching their own message and their own agenda, trying to create all of this following for their own cause. They're like, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They just went following the Lord. Come on. And then... I would challenge you, be available, but just be obedient. The spontaneous, unscripted things that God does in the moment is you're obeying his will, as you're just trying to walk with him. He's like, just obey me. Even when they told Peter and John, you remember early on in Acts, they're like, hey, shut up, quit teaching that, quit preaching that. We've had enough. We're going we're gonna to lock you up. We're going to kill you. And they're like, we got to obey God and not man. We got to obey God and not man. So when they released them, what did they do? They kept preaching Jesus. It's amazing 
Like, I came across something this week. It, 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 I was scratching my head. I was like, what a trip that was. God is wanting to write a 29 story, and you don't know how it's going to unfold at any given moment. Barb wrote this piece about 22, 24 years ago, and I saw it the other day. She goes, you remember that? And I said, that was a trip. You remember back in the day before there were cell phones? Praise the Lord. And it, okay, younger generation, I'm missing y'all. But listen to me. Once upon a time, there was a day that did not have cell phones. Anybody remember that? Remember when you had a home phone? Remember when you had an answer machine? Remember when you would go out and do whatever you did and you came back in and you would look at that machine to see if the light was? Uh-oh, got a message. This is before caller ID, man. We had an answering machine. And this is before pagers. This is before fax machines. This is way before internet. I, I'll never forget we came back that night and I was like, I, we got a message. We got, we, got, we got a message over there blinking on this thing. And I was like, Barb, I need, I need to see what that is and hit the message. Hey, this is Joe, and uh, I got your number. I hear you're a lawyer. I got a DUI, and uh, I, I need some help. Uh, if you would call me, my number is da 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 da. I'm like, I'm like, man, Joe's in a mess, <laughs> and Joe's probably waiting for a lawyer to call him back because he's in a mess. I need to call Joe back and tell him that I'm not a lawyer. But hopefully he can get the right number to call a lawyer. Call it back. This, this, you, you see what it did? I remember the days. <laughs> right? Praise God we didn't have to put area codes on those phones back then. Like, especially like a 912. So, Ray, I called this guy back. Hey, uh, Joe. You left a message for me saying you got a DUI last night. You're in all kinds of hurt. Yeah, man, thanks for calling back. Uh, 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 Joe, 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 listen to me. My name's Tim, man. I'm not a lawyer, but it seems like uh, you got some pain going on in your life. It seems like you got some bondage and addiction going on in your life. Joe, it seems like, man, it, it's, it's pretty rough for you. Dude starts weeping. It's so rough, man. I got another DUI. And da, 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 da. I said, Joe, 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 listen, listen. I'm not saying you don't need to talk to a lawyer, but just listen to me for a second. Joe, where are you at in life, man? What's your view of God? Where, where, are, you, where are you at in this journey right now? Dude starts opening up. I, hey, Joe, Joe, man, I was lost. Can I share with you what changed my life, Joe, that took me from the ditch, man, and got my feet on the, 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 the road where I know how to walk? Joe, can I tell you what happened to me? Yes. Share the gospel with Joe. Joe starts weeping. Joe, what would prevent you from... Giving your life to Christ. Joe, you need Jesus. I know I need Jesus, Mom. I, I was brought up in it. I've run from it. I've dodged it. Oh, man, I need help. Joe prays to receive Christ on the phone. I was like, look at that 29 story. That dude called the right, wrong number. <laughs> and there's, those stories can happen. Hey, hey. I thought this was the address I was supposed to be at. Well, it just might be. But oftentimes, if we're not like just engaging with people, God didn't use me because I'm, I'm good. I think he used me because I'm useful. I, I, 
He will use you. That, I read that the other day, and I go, that was a crazy story. That really did happen. And I remember the Lord doing that. And I hung up, and I was like, man, praise God that hopefully Joe finds some fellowship and finds a place to connect. Here, here's the problem with most of us. Like with Peter and John, if I honor Jesus and if I share the gospel and if I go out there and share my faith, I'm going to get rejected. I'm going to have suffering. I'm going to have insult. I'm going to have persecution. And so we really sit back and go, am I willing to count the cost? Is it worth it? Am I scared? It's so sad. It's so sad in most churches that most people never become disciples. At best, they become converts. Most people sit there, ponder it, but they never become committed to spiritual formation and growth, and they never share their faith with anybody else, and they never totally walk in the yoke, the teachings of Jesus. It's like... Been around it. How's that working for you? Been around it for a while. I got some knowledge of it. I got knowledge about a lot of things. You do too. I got knowledge that the moon, based on what I've studied, is about 250,000 miles from the earth. I've got knowledge based on some things I've read that... It's a big, shiny object that we see, but you can actually stand on it, and it's not made of cheese, and people have gone there. I've got knowledge of this thing, but Neil Armstrong has got experience. And I think a lot of us who have been around the faith have knowledge of the gospel, have knowledge that maybe that would be a good thing to do, but once did I, did I quote it well enough on the front side? that it's impossible to be satisfied with existence once you've tasted purpose. If you experience it, God just used me. I'm just an old donkey giving divinity a ride, and God used me to share his love with somebody else. No way. I would like to do that again, God. If you do it one time, you'll want to do it again. If you do it again, even after being rejected and people insulting you, 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 you might eventually get to the place where you, you say, they didn't reject me, they were rejecting Jesus. i got to do it again. I wrote down three reasons why I'm missional. One would be because of my love for Christ, but my love for Christ is only reciprocating his love for me. He, I love him because he first loved me. But because I love Jesus, I do believe what Jesus said when he said, if anyone loves me, they will obey my commands. And so the Great Commission is not a suggestion. It really is a command. It's like, if you love me, you, you're going to go do this. A second reason is because Jesus, when I studied Scripture, made it very clear to go everywhere and tell everybody. Just go tell them. Their response is not your that's not your responsibility. The third reason would be because people everywhere that I meet are, are searching and starving for hope because they're lost and they're confused and they're disoriented and it's like, God, I need help. Let me tell you some benefits. The benefits for those who are redeemed, benefits for those who have been around the faith for a bit, 
There's some benefits for living a missional life and becoming a disciple maker. One, it causes growth in both the disciple and the disciple maker. We grow more when we're strategically involved in helping others grow. We, we drove up Wednesday night for our, our, our Bible study thing that we do here. Dallas and I was driving up, and as soon as we pulled off the little Tig Night Road here, and we started coming up this little drive right here, I saw my two girls in this room over here getting ready for their Wednesday night thing. And I looked at Dallas and I said, them two stinking girls right there are fired up that they're going to get to invest in these kids tonight. Look at them. I mean, it probably starts at 6.45, 7 o'clock, but it was like 6.15. And I just stopped and I said, look at them. They're fired up. I mean, here they are. They're in their late 50s, whatever they are, mid to late 50s, and they're about to be pouring into these 10 and 12-year-olds. And you know what? They're growing because they're helping somebody else grow. That happens with us. I, I love that. When I saw y'all, I was like, look at them girls. Crazy. That's what Cindy just said. We are crazy. You know another benefit from living a missional life and being a disciple maker? It allows older believers to stay vibrant in their faith. It's hard to get stuck and be stale. When you disciple a younger believer, it's almost like for some people, their faith becomes fresh and exciting again. Steve, it happens. You, you start to pour into someone, you're like, this is fun. I was meeting with a young man the other night, 25 years old. And he, he's asked uh, that I would mentor and kind of shepherd him a little bit. But I sat down and I said, tell me what you think becoming a disciple of Christ means. And we started talking. This dude's 25 years old, been married maybe about uh, close to a year. He, he's excited. He wants to get this foundation. But I was looking going, meeting with this guy is going to help me big time grow. He's going to have questions. He's going to have thoughts. It's going to keep me fresh. Do you realize that when you start to pour into somebody else, and I'm not talking about just chronological age. I'm talking about spiritual maturity age. I mean, you start to hang with somebody, and you're like, this is fun. This is a lot of fun. And there's people in this room right now that are young in their faith or early in their journey and hanging out. It's like, oh, that's so much fun. Yeah, another benefit from becoming a missional-minded, disciple-maker kind of person is it reduces an unhealthy dependence that people can have on pastors. Because you start to see yourself as an equipper of people and as a minister of reconciliation. And so people will oftentimes come and go, hey, man, I, I, I want to meet with you, want to grab some time with you. And I'm like, that, that, that's good, but let me tell you how this thing is going to unfold. I'm not going to meet with you, but I'm going to pair you up with this person here that's got a similar narrative and journey. And, and you might feel like you're at mile marker two, and there might be at mile marker 12 right now, but I think this person would love to walk with you. Well, I, I, if I can't meet with a pastor, I'm not coming. Bam! Hit the door, baby, because let me tell you how we're doing it here. We're a body, and there's only one head, and it's Jesus. And I've had people think that way. Well, if I can't meet with the pastor, I just won't show up. Bam! Find you somewhere where the pastor will meet with you. 
I meet with people all the time, but we're a body. And there's unhealthy dependence. <laughs> I'm glad my mama's not here in this service. She would go, son, back off of that a little bit. Mama was here in the first service. But it does. I've been in churches where there's unhealthy dependence, and it's like, let's do this together. There's people in this body that can help other people a lot better than I can. Here's the fourth thing. Discipleship helps shut the back door. Did y'all hear that? It helps shut the back door. Most people that attend church that float into a church will stay there on average based on Barna and some of this other research. They'll stay about three or four months. But if they get into a small group and they start getting connected and they get in a spiritual formation group and they start becoming discipled, they're more apt to stay. Back to this unhealthy dependence upon a pastor style thinking. All right, check this out, Madison. This is crazy. This was the model that I got introduced to years ago right after I got saved. Hey, man, you need to go out there and lead as many people to Christ as you can. Like, what is that? Okay. And I thought I was leading people to Christ, and then I came to realize only the Holy Spirit can draw a person to Christ, and I was a donkey giving divinity a ride, so I wasn't leading anybody. I was just carrying Jesus. But if you have that mindset like that I got introduced to, go lead them to Jesus. Well, if you let 100 people to Jesus, whatever that means, every year for 36 years, at the end of 36 years, you could maybe brag that you have led do the math, 3,600 people to Christ. But if God used you to, to maybe point a person to Christ, and all of a sudden I start spending time with Drew, and I start spending time with John Mark, and I start spending time with Chad, and all of a sudden I sit down with these three guys that come to faith in Christ, and we start to pour into these three guys, and all of a sudden we understand what it means to walk with Jesus, and we start to apply 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, that the things you've heard from me in the presence of some of the other witnesses here, go and trust the other faithful men. And they say, all right, we got it. We're going to go out, and, and, and hopefully God will allow us to lead three people to Christ this year. You go lead another three. And then all of a sudden, those three that you trained and mentored and discipled after coming to faith in Christ go out. And then I keep going out. And then those three, that new ones, at the end of 36 years, there would be about one million 48,000 people come to faith in Christ who would be discipled. Do you, do you see that when all of us are committed to being the church and living intentional 29-style missional lives, how the church, Jesus' church grows? I like what C.S. Lewis said. C.S. Lewis said, the only thing Christianity cannot be is moderately important. If it is true, then it deserves everything you've got. Stop. Leave that up there for a second. The only thing that Christianity cannot be is just moderately important. If it is true, it deserves, it demands, it inspires everything that we've got. 29, it's on. 